Welcome to Wide-Mindedness with Victoria Ball, the podcast in which I interview expert guests who want to join me in celebrating that life is not black and white. Our society is increasingly divided, and the us-versus-them mentality seems to dominate our conversations and relationships with others. I believe that life is much richer when we widen our minds to consider multiple opinions and perspectives. So challenge your assumptions and let's become truly wide-minded together. Jason Webster was born in California to British parents in 1970 and spent his childhood in the US, Britain and Germany. He first moved to Spain in the early 1990s, having graduated in Arabic and Islamic history from St John's College, Oxford. He has written a dozen books on Spanish themes, from travel writing to history to fiction. In 2013, he presented Flash Mob Flamenco, a documentary on BBC Radio 4 on the response within the flamenco community to the economic crisis in Spain. He has appeared in television documentaries for the BBC, Five and the Discovery Channel. Webster is also an award-winning photographer, a founder member of the Bridport School of Writing, and was the flamenco correspondent for Classical Guitar magazine. He created and led a series of cultural tours around Spain, examining the history of the pilgrimage to Santiago, relations between Moors and Christians in the Middle Ages, and the Spanish Civil War, which was named as one of the best tours of Spain by the Sunday Times. In addition, Webster has written extensively for British and Spanish newspapers, including The Financial Times, The Telegraph, The Guardian, The Observer and El Asombrario. He is married to the flamenco dancer Salud Botea and has two children. Welcome, Jason. Welcome to the Wide Mindedness Podcast. Hello. Hi. I'm so looking forward to virtually taking listeners to Spain during this episode with you. Great. I think it may be the only way we're going to get to Spain this summer. Indeed. So let's start at the beginning. You were born in California to British parents and you grew up in the UK, US, Germany. I think you were educated in England, Egypt and Italy. And most of your adult life, you've, you've obviously focused on Spain. What have you gained from living in so many different countries and cultures? Yeah, I think uh, the main thing is probably understanding that there are different types of intelligence. Um, I think in in an English context, you know, we tend to think of in- intelligence as being something that's purely intellectual. Um, and I really understood from living particularly in Middle Eastern and Mediterranean countries, you know, Italy, Spain, Egypt, that actually there, there's a whole different type. There are all sways of different types of intelligence out there and particularly sort of social and emotional intelligence and that for me was a huge kind of breakthrough um and even now i mean i'm based mostly in england now and you know coming back here and you sort of say yeah you know and my wife is spanish and we often talk <laughs> like spaniards about the english you know we have these sort of conversations maybe you know someone's come around for lunch or something and then they leave and you're sort of chatting about them and you go yeah you know they, they they have different ideas about what is what is being clever what is being intelligent and also i think it's about just different values um you by by living in other places Rather than just traveling, for me, it's about living in different countries. Um, You really sort of drill down into the culture, each individual culture where where you're staying. And you pick up all kinds of stuff, different ways of seeing the world, different ways of doing things. You know, you don't have to just do things in one particular way. 
if you were only to live in your own country, say in England, you know, there are various tribes in England, various, you know, mm -hmm. social tribes. So you could learn from the different ways that they do things. But actually, you've got to get out of your own country to see there's a huge range of ways of living, of what you expect from life. You know, it's, it's I mean, you could go on. It's, it's almost an endless learning curve by from from living abroad and when i and i think living in abroad for me is important because traveling can be can be quite superficial it's when you live in a country that you really as i say mm. build down into it i completely agree with that from my experience as well you get a completely different perspective when you have a reason to be there and a purpose and it, you're part of the community in a sense yeah absolutely i remember you know even as a when i was a teenager you know i, I remember once i was at a um a party and there were these people there and they'd all been um, to India and they were talking about their experiences in India they hadn't gone together these people were meeting each other for the very first time and it suddenly came up oh you've been to India oh yes I've been to India and you know there were about four or five of them and they all started talking about their experiences and suddenly I realized that they'd all be they'd all done exactly the same thing and they'd all gone to the same places and they'd say, oh you went to such and such a city oh did you stay at the you know the bed and breakfast run by you know blind bob or whatever you know whatever the stories were and it was like <laughs> oh my god you know you're, this is a country of over a billion people and you four of you have just come to this party met each other the first time and you all did exactly the same thing you know this is this is insane you know it's it's like there's a superficial lay, lay at level of of travel that's when i think i realized that a lot of travel can can really just be like watching a, a, a documentary on tv you're not actually experiencing very much at all and actually to really get the most out of a out of your experiences abroad you know you need to sort of spend time there slow down really slow down and let the culture kind of absorb into you like a sort of process of, of osmosis I think and of course you have lived in Spain for a number of years can you tell us how this love affair with the country started and of course how you met your wife the flamenco dancer Salud yeah um so I was a, a teenager again, and I came across some images of the Alhambra Palace in Granada, and it was just a life-changing moment because it, I just thought it was the most extraordinary thing I'd ever seen. I, I, I just absolutely fell in love with the place. Um, and that sort of led me on a journey where I wanted to explore and understand the culture that had been capable of making something so extraordinarily beautiful. And that in turn led me to do Arabic and Islamic history at Oxford. And when I when I finished my degree, I kind of realized that actually that, you know, that was almost like a slight diversion. And actually it was Spain. Spain was the place that I wanted to go to. And so I that's when I sort of jumped on a on an airplane and went to Spain and finally sort of went to the Alhambra and just fell in love with the country almost well, almost on the first day, I think, um, and haven't looked back. It's just mm. that was uh, 30 something years ago. It's just been part of my life ever since. I mean, you know, the the, a fun, the fundamental element within my adult life. Absolutely. When How I Met Salud, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, so I'd lived in Spain for a few years and I moved back to England uh, for a while. And actually, it was when I was in England. Um, uh, a friend told me that there was a flamenco um, performance taking place in uh, North Oxford, of all places. And so I went along and we she was dancing and I was blown away and I went backstage afterwards and and that was it. You know, soon after I moved to she's from Valencia. Soon after I moved to Valencia, um, my writing career was just taking off at the time. And so I was able to leave my 
um, sort of dead end job at the BBC, and um, yeah, moved to Valencia, and that was it. And as you say, that was the start of this phenomenal writing career. You've written a number of books, most of them inspired by Spain, and they range hugely from travel to history to detective novels. Have you ever felt pressure to stick just to one genre? And do you think your work has benefited from working in these different genres? I mean, yes, absolutely benefited, uh, has benefited from it because I think the idea, you know, the mind doesn't, you know, these genres don't and categories, they don't exist in our minds, actually. Well, they don't exist in my mind. And, mm. you know, the, and the pressure to, to conform to those categories and genres is there, but in a kind of unspoken way. I've written a new book, um, which I'm going to be bringing out hopefully next month, and it really ranges across the genres. Mm. There's, um, uh, there's fiction, there's nonfiction essay, there's a photo essay in there. There are, you know, it's, it's, it really is, um, goes beyond all categories. And so I was um, at a meeting at the local bookshop here, and I was telling the bookseller about this book, and I was sort of asking her, you know, where she might put the book in her bookshop. And she was sort of flummoxed because actually, you know, and you can see, you're, looking, you're, sitting, you're standing in the bookshop and it's like, you know, there's sort of poetry here and then there's, um, you know, art, you know, science books here and there's, you know, whatever um, uh, adult fiction at the end. And, you know, she was going, uh, well, uh, mm, I don't really know. And eventually we sort of came up with a solution that maybe it would go in the sort of general travel section because obviously it's, it's sort of focusing on Spain. But, you know, that's how the, the, the sort of the pressure to conform and to only write in a certain genre comes in that form. Nobody ever sort of wags their finger at you and says you should only write, you know, cookbooks or something. Um, but there is this, when you're dealing with publishers, editors, agents, booksellers, and you're talking to them about what you're writing, it's like they can only understand these, uh, these categories. I hope that my conversation with Jason is transporting you to Spain. We go on to talk more about his own experiences of living there and our shared fascination with Moorish Spain and what effect that has had on modern Spanish identity. Don't forget to sign up to my monthly newsletter at victoria-ball.com and follow me at widemindednessvictoriaball on Facebook and Instagram, where I share my top episode takeouts and wide-minded wise words from some of history's greatest thinkers. Do leave a rating and a review if you're enjoying the podcast. So you, you feel that, oh, well, maybe I should only be writing, um, you know, historical fiction, for example. Um, because otherwise, how the hell is anybody going to sell my book? Um, but I, I can't do that. I just can't do that. I mean, I remember I, I, I had a, I remember this really hit home when I, I'd written four nonfiction books. And then I started writing the Max Camera crime novels. And suddenly all these sort of questions start coming in from interviewers and people, you know, it's like, oh, how does it feel to change from fiction to nonfiction? And for me, it was a non-question. It was like, well, I, you know, I write stories and, you know, it's just you try to engage with your readers and you just try to express something. Mm. And actually, there's no difference at all. Um, and they and, and I couldn't understand, I couldn't understand them and they obviously couldn't understand me. And that's when I began to realize it's like, OK, you know, these categories for, for a lot of people are are real. Um, whereas I think if you come from somebody who if you're just naturally creative, you, you're not thinking in terms of categories. You're just, you're just doing, you're just making what you make and, you know, let other people work out how to categorize it. Yeah.
And I think that is actually a wonderful analogy for the whole of uh, life, but also, you know, society's pressures. I think there is a very strong pressure to be in a box, to fit in a category. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, we get, it starts at school, you know, it's like, okay, so these are the subjects that we're going to study. And this is science, and this is art, and this is maths, and this is literature, you know, and it's like, I think it, it just gets ingrained in you um, from a very early age that, you know, there are these categories that define the world. Um, whereas we all know, and, this, and this, is the, this is the really stupid thing, we all know that the great breakthroughs in all areas of life almost always come from when somebody combines to sort of, you know, or they, they work in a sort of cross genre way and they bring ideas from one category into a different category and bang, something happens, some kind of alchemy takes place and they, and they take a huge leap forwards. Um, so, you know, despite knowing this, we still seem to want to carry on working within these categories as though they were real and they're not real. They're just sort of constructs of, of our you know our society has created these constructs and then we treat them as though as though they actually existed where well, they don't exist we could break them down just as easily as we as we built them up to begin with now i really enjoyed reading about your journey to learn flamenco guitar and you, you write about it in your book duende which was read on radio 4's book of the week can you try to explain um which is a very difficult question i i appreciate what duende is and how it felt as a foreigner to search for this most Spanish of sensations. Yeah, I mean, I deliberately in the book uh, refrain from giving a sort of definitive definition of duende because duende is something that you experience. You know, um, there's a sort of a, there's a saying, you know, he who tastes knows, and it's that's the case with duende. You've either experienced it or you haven't. But that said, um, I think you can sort of a, try and sort of move towards it. Very simply put, duende, the word. Duende in Spanish just means like a a gin or a or a goblin or an earth spirit of some kind, and in a flamenco context, um, it's used to describe experiences that can be produced by the music when all of a sudden, you know, the hair stands up on the back of your neck and you just go, "Wow, what was that?" It's more than just um, enjoying the music and the dance. It's su suddenly you seem to be transported in some way, and something extraordinary and exceptional happens everybody's experience of duende is probably if they've had one is personal and i don't think you can sort of that which is why i don't think you can say it is this you can't give a definitive definition of it but for me it seems to be an experience which hints at or whispers about the some other realm of experience some other realm of existence that that, that um, lies beyond the ordinary senses and the ordinary physical world. Um, and you're right, it is very Spanish on one level. And yet, when you sort of dig down, you find that something like this exists in quite a few cultures around the world. Um, in you know, in the Middle East, they talk about hal, um, you know, in a, in a Persian context, hal, you know, meaning you know, a state or a state of consciousness or, or an altered state of consciousness, um, which can be produced by poetry recitations or certain musical performances as well. It's something that exists, I think, in, in various cultures. Duende is the 
Spanish manifestation of it. And you really are giving a great flavour here of some of those uh, so Spanish moments. In your detective series, um, the Max Cameron novels, which you've mentioned already, the scene is set in Valencia. When I started writing the Max Cameron novels, I'd been living in Valencia already for 10 years or so. There'd been this sort of half-baked idea just sort of there in my mind of writing um, crime novels set in Valencia. I suppose all the um, experiences I'd had of Valencia, everything I'd been absorbing about Valencia over the previous years, and start you putting it into putting it into these books. And so that's that's what I did. Then almost at the, at the very instant that I had that thought, Max Cameron just sort of appeared in front of me, pretty much fully formed. Your love affair with Spain began through discovering the Alhambra because it's exactly the same as my story and exactly the same reason I I went to university to study Arabic and Islamic history. Wow. wow. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of overlap there. And um, your book, Andalus, delves into this area and, and it is such a passion of mine, of Moorish Spain. Please, can you tell listeners more about this period and just about the different ethnic and religious peoples who were living together during the Middle Ages on the Iberian Peninsula? Gosh, yes. I mean, huge, huge subject. And, you know, one, it is one of my big passions. It's probably, you know, it's how I started my, it's how my love affair with Spain began. And in fact, I'm working on a book idea now, which is delves into this. You know, my last published book, um, Violencia, History of Spain, talks a lot about the Moorish period as well. So it's one of these things that I just come back to again and again. Um, it's, I mean, it's fascinating for me, you know, Spain and is, um, Really, and Moorish Spain, it's the birthplace of the West. It's the birthplace of of the Western world and Western civilization. You know, it's that important. You know, we tend to think of Athens and Rome as being the birthplace of of Western civilization, and I disagree. It, for me, it's it's uh, Spain, and it's to do with this um, blending of Eastern and you know, of Middle Eastern, African and European cultures that takes place in Spain over many, many centuries. Um, even before the arrival of the Moors in the 8th century, you know, you go back to the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians are Semitic and the Phoenicians were the people who were founding the very first cities in Western Europe, you know, on the southern border, in southern coastline of uh, Spain. So, you know, cities like uh, Malaga and Cadiz were founded 3,000 years ago by these Semitic peoples, you know, the Phoenicians. Um, you know, they then become Carthaginian settlements. And so by the time the Moors arrive in the 8th century, there's this long tradition, thousands of years old, of Semitic peoples arriving and sort of moving into the Iberian Peninsula. Um, and so, you know, the Moorish period, uh, which stretches from, you know, 711 to either 1492, which is when the Granada, the last Moorish kingdom, falls, or if you prefer, which I prefer, 1609, which is when the last Moors, the Moriscos, as they're called at that time, when they're expelled. So it's a 900-year um, period of, of history. You know, it's, it, and, and, you know, we have to remember that, you know, the, there's, a, there's a, an important Jewish element to this whole um, side of Spanish history as well. Um, you know, you've got this incredible blending of, of cultures and, we, and it's hugely important for Spain and for, um, the you know, the cultural uh, development of Europe and for the eventual, you know, advancement of world civilization. Because once it's part of the Islamic empire, um, Spain 
is connected to a sort of a highway which um, links it with cultures that stretch as far east as the Hindu Kush. You know, movement within the Islamic Empire is is pretty easy, even if the Islamic Empire breaks up into these different sort of political entities, which which it does fairly quickly. Um, it's once you are part of the sort of Muslim world, you know, you it, it's it's it's. You know that's that is your cultural milieu, and so very soon um, you've got uh, science and technology and arts and music and food and all kinds of things which um, exist in, say, in Baghdad. You know all this is arriving in Spain um, thanks to this cultural crossover, which you know it, say the Mediterranean just becomes a sort of super highway of of ideas. Um, and that all reaches Spain, and then from Spain it kind of seeps through up into into Northern Europe. I could talk endlessly about this because it is so important in in um, for, for world history, um, you know. And we've got you know the kinds of figures, important figures that a- appear at this time. Um, you know, I was writing about somebody only yesterday. I was writing about Abbas Ibn Firnes, who's um, the first the first man ever to fly. He he builds a glider, and this is in the ninth century in Cordoba. You know, um, he builds a glider and manages to sort of launch himself from a from a hillside near Cordoba and flies for several minutes. Um, he then manages to land rather badly. He he hadn't he'd worked out flying. He hadn't worked out the importance of landing, and he broke several bones when he landed. Um, but he was already he was a polymath. This guy. Um, you know, he designed a water clock. He created um, what he called reading stones, which are sort of lenses to help long-sighted people like me um, be able to read. Um, uh, you know, he was a physician. He was a poet. And, you know, he was living in the 800s, in the mid-800s in Cordoba. You know, I actually, while I was writing about him, because I was doing a blog article about him yesterday, um, and I was looking on, you know, on my bookshelves. I've got pretty much you know, all the standard books on Moorish Spain. And I was going through them, going through the index of all of them. Like barely any of them mentioned this guy. You know, it's extraordinary. And and one of the reasons why I think is because he was like, there were so many people like him um, during the period of Moorish Spain. You know, there was this sort of idea of the Renaissance, you know, centuries before the Renaissance. You know, um, Moorish Spain was populated by many mm. um, Renaissance men um, and they are in the majority. They are men. There are some. Uh, there are some accomplished women, but obviously we're dealing with a sort of quite a, a sort of a male-dominated society. There are, you know, some kind of celebrated uh, Moorish poetesses from the same period as, as Ibn Firnas. Yeah. So, so another example, and one of my favourites, and you know, one of the greatest Spaniards ever to live is Ibn Ibn Rushd, otherwise known as Averroes, um, who mm. helps helps the world to understand what Aristotle is saying, and so becomes the godfather of um, Western rational thought. It's, you know, it's as, it's as important as that, you know, Aristotle is, is, is really, mm-hmm. he's notoriously difficult to understand. I mean, what we have, what Aristotle has given us or the writings that, that, they, that, that exist of Aristotle are more or less lecture notes. So it takes somebody like Averroes to come along and say, okay, this is what Aristotle is really saying. And he writes these commentaries and these commentaries almost within his own lifetime. He dies in 1198, almost within his own lifetime. They're being translated into Latin in Toledo, just not very far from where um, Averroes is living in Cordoba. Um, and 
by being translated into Latin, all his ideas and explanations of Aristotle then seep into Western culture and, you know, go on to influence people like um, Thomas Aquinas. Well, actually, rational thinking comes up time and time again as one of the key uh, concepts or one of the key values that defines mm. Western civilization. That comes from this Cordoban Muslim called Averroes, who lived in Cordoba in the 12th century. I've broken my conversation with Jason Webster into two parts to allow you to go and cut a slice of manchego, tear a hunk of bread, and pour a glass of smooth Rioja to accompany you through our discussion of Moorish Spain. Be sure to join us both for part two. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wide Mindedness with Victoria Ball. I really hope you enjoyed it. Please let others learn about it by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. For more great wide-minded content, follow me at Wide Mindedness Victoria Ball on Facebook and Instagram, and sign up to the monthly newsletter at victoria-ball.com.